Today is the second Sunday of Advent, four weeks dedicated to focusing our attention on the return of Jesus and just what that should mean for us. Before we turn our attention to our Gospel passage from the first 12 verses of the Gospel of St. Matthew, third chapter, I want to invite your attention to another church calendar event, and that is today, December 8th, regardless of what day of the week it falls, it just happens that this year it falls on a Sunday, but December the 8th is the day the church sets aside to observe the conception of Mary, mother of Jesus. Way back in March, about nine months ago, on the 25th of March, therefore lining up with a nine-month pregnancy ending with Christmas, we had the observation of the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel explained to Mary how she would conceive, even though a virgin, and be pregnant with the Son of God, Messiah to the world. That is the virgin conception of Christ. But today, the 8th of December, that's the observation of the conception of Mary. Being on a Sunday this year, Churches that do have special celebrations will have those services tomorrow. Sunday is always focused on the resurrection of our Savior, his conquering of sin and death. So any aligned holiday was shifted to the nearest day of the week. But we want to take a moment to recognize the day, December 8th, the conception of Mary Because God selected Mary as a woman unique among all of humanity. She's destined to carry Jesus in her womb, care for him in his infancy, raise him in his youth. And then the fear of probably every parent outlive her child, outlive him in his adulthood, having him brutally killed before her very eyes. Mary was not simply randomly picked. The words of Isaiah describe her most certainly when he says, The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. He has been mindful of my name. For these reasons, it's important to recognize that from her very conception, Mary was, through divine action, consecrated to the Lord and through a unique working of God's grace, preserved in her purity in order to become the Ark of the New Covenant. Her perfect submission to God in her life being most clearly stated with her response to the Archangel Gabriel, let it be done to me according to God's will. How different is that from us? I will not speak for you, only myself, But I've not always said, let it be done to me according to God's will. I have said more frequently than I would like to admit, let me do what I want to do. Give me what I want because what I want for myself is all I can think about. I know it's not right, but I want to do it and nobody can tell me not to. And, especially in our setting, It's a free country. I have the right to do this, whatever that this may have been. And with a bit of thinking about past offenses against God, also known as sins, I'm sure I can find plenty 
more things that I have said and then did against the will of God rather than let it be done to me according to God's will. And with that, I put that question out to you. What about you? No need, no desire for you to answer out loud. I'm reasonably confident that the same or similar words and attitudes and actions have been part of your life. With that reality in mind, we turn our attention to that gospel passage from Matthew chapter 3, where we see John the Baptist in the wilderness crying out, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. A little later, John the Baptist instructs, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And finally, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. While there are a variety of colorful details in this passage, like John the Baptist wearing camel hair, eating bugs sweetened with honey, his rather forceful rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees, saying to them, Oh, you brood of vipers. That, at this point, is just a distraction from the core of John the Baptist's message. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the Messiah is coming. Do not rely on being a child of Abraham. Meaning, do not think you're good enough just because of who you think you are. And finally, he will gather wheat into the barn and chaff will go into the fire. Plain and simple, there will be a judgment and it will result in either being in the kingdom of God or the fires of hell. And for these reasons, John the Baptist says, Repent, repent, repent. When I was young and in an evangelism-focused church and denomination, the word repent was basically defined as feeling sorry for sin and asking for forgiveness. It was sort of a singular action. Now, there is a truth to that. It is a true component of repentance, But without any other emphasis, it does not explain or encourage the idea of, as John the Baptist said it, bearing the fruit in keeping with repentance. That repentance is more than that singular action. So that sorrow and seeking forgiveness is only a portion of the total of the definition of repent. Now, at the other end of the church spectrum, we have the various expressions of Christianity, Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, a few others, where we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the sacraments given to us by God. And repent is more frequently said as do penance. Now, repent and penance are two equally valid English translations of the same Greek word and its Latin equivalent, So there's no contest here of which is correct as far as the sacramentalists saying that you are to do penance or the Protestants who are saying to repent. There is a difference, though, in how the term is understood. Do penance is often an action or a task given representing one's thankfulness for having been absolved absolved of sins. And this is typically marked by saying of a few prayers, long gone are the days of acts of penance which are punitive. Recognition that penance 
bearing fruit is not a punishment, but something positive. Penance are thankfulness for having already received your absolution. Now again, this is a valid, but moving away from the feeling sorry part, more focused on that fruit of repentance. In this case, in most cases, some added prayers. Both of these uses of the term, whether it's translated repent or whether it's translated as do penance, both of these leave us with a problem. That they are not really what it means to repent or to do penance fully. They are both incomplete definitions. If we are to do what John the Baptist tells us, in order to be saved by God, brought into his kingdom, we need to know just what it means, just what John the Baptist himself meant to repent or to do penance. So here is what John the Baptist meant. The phrase that is, or excuse me, the singular word that is translated either repent or the phrase do penance means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Though in an English focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin, the emphasis in the biblical text is more specifically the total change both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should think and act. In the simplest of English, turn around and go the other way. With this understanding, it might be helpful for us to make a habit of using the two equally valid translations of the Greek together and say repent and do penance. In our using it this way, we'll say that you are to repent, turn around, stop doing those things which violate the will of God, stop doing those sins, and do penance, walk away from them, change your priorities from serving self to serving God. Doing so gives us a much more complete understanding of just what John the Baptist was saying. And when we do, when we repent and do penance, when we turn around and walk the other way, we will be positioning ourselves to do exactly what Jesus told us to do when he said, follow me. It is Advent. Jesus is coming. We must get ready. How do we do it? We stop. We turn around. We walk away from our sins. Follow Jesus. Just like John the Baptist said, repent and do penance. Amen.